Good morning. It's not a place I would rather be on this side of eternity than right here, right now with all of you. Amen? Amen. It's good to be together. Um, I'm really excited today to get to celebrate Father's Day. Um, it's an exciting day to celebrate all that the <clears throat> so many have contributed to to growing godly families, and I've prepared today's lesson with that in mind. We're going to be in kind of an odd location for Father's Day. We're going to be in Job chapter 1, verses 1 through 5, and I would like for you to all turn your Bibles there and be ready. While you're turning, I want to kind of think about something some of y'all may be familiar with, especially you mothers who likely have spent the last week trying to figure out what sort of gift you're going to purchase for Father's Day. It can be quite a challenge purchasing a gift for someone who has everything, isn't it? I get maybe a little amen to that. Um, I, my wife gets pretty annoyed at me because I feel like every time I mention something that maybe I'm interested in or like, then it's not just a few days later that I show up to the house with it. And she's like, how am I ever going to get you a gift that you enjoy if you go and buy everything that you want? And, uh, and I don't know if that's, uh, if that's an indictment on me. Um, being too consumeristic or not wanting enough stuff. I'm not sure. I'm afraid that it may be the, may be the first. I read an article, actually, from Psychology Today, which uh, I know isn't, a, isn't necessarily a, a scholarly um, source, but it had a lot to say about why men specifically are a little extra hard to buy for. And so I'll see if y'all uh, agree with some of its findings. Why is it so difficult to buy gifts for men? Well, the first main point that they argued was this. They said the simplest reason is that men just seem to be given more social permission to buy what they want for themselves. So if there's something they want, they've probably already bought it. So we experience that in our house some. If, uh, and I usually have a pretty good reason for it. Usually the things that I want is like a tool. And I mean, you always have an... Dad, Dad brought me... A, if there's one thing that my father passed on to me, it was permission to buy tools when you need it. And so, uh, so most of the time we just buy the things that we want. But below the surface, there's some other things going on. I think men are socialized to find their self-worth in taking care of women and children and not to want anything for themselves. They certainly have a hard time needing anything from others. And so that's often why men, if asked what they would like, insist, you know, I don't want anything for myself. I don't want anything this year. You don't need to buy me a gift. Well, psychology today says that's kind of rooted in uh, this socialization. They also argue that men are often unaware of the things that they might want. So even if they, and even when they are aware, they have difficulty receiving from people who care about them. I suppose there's a little bit of truth in that also. Um, so often, I, I would imagine some of you mothers have been struggling with this today, racking your brains, trying to think of a gift for a guy who has everything you wanted. Here's the conclusion of this article. Uh, they said, well, um, after looking at all of the data, here's what you should do for Father's Day. You should try to buy him something um, that's just for him, like a massage, a gift certificate to a yoga class, or an escape room experience. Luckily, Brianna did not read this article, because I don't want any of those things. So I guess you got to take what you read on the internet with a grain of salt. Um, you can't trust everything. Um, may I suggest this as an alternative for a Father's Day gift? Just point out the fact, whether you're a child or a, a loving wife, that they got all the gift they could ever want when they received you, and that should be enough. 
thinking of people that it's impossible to buy for. Can you imagine how Job's wife and ten kids would have felt on Father's Day? Let's, let's read a little bit about what this guy was, was like. Job 1, 1 through 5. It says, There was a, land, uh, a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job, and that man was blameless and upright, one who feared God and turned away from evil. There were born to him seven sons and three daughters. He possessed 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, and 500 female donkeys, and very many servants. So this man was the greatest of all the people of the East. His sons used to go and hold a feast in the house of each one in his day, and they would send and invite their three sisters to eat and drink with them. And when the days of the feast had run their course, Job would send and consecrate them, and he would rise early in the morning and offer burnt offerings according to the number of them all. For Job said, It may be that my children have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. Thus Job did continually. So there we have it, the snapshot of a man who... uh, who seemingly had everything. Uh, first question I want to ask is, is, who was Job? Well, Job lived a, a long time ago. A lot of scholars actually believe Job is one of the, the oldest, Bibles, or oldest books in the Bible. We see several um, indicators of this. There's kind of some odd things that happen. So you might have noticed that Job himself offers sacrifices instead of relying on a priest. That was kind of an odd thing to do. Later on in Job chapter 42, we actually see that some of Job's friends are, um, are commanded to offer burnt offerings on, uh, for themselves um, because of their transgressions. And so this was sanctioned by God. We also see that his wealth was measured in livestock and not gold. So there in verse 3, it gives a list of his possessions, but gold is never mentioned. Later on, at the end of the book, we see Job give a portion of his inheritance to his daughters in Job 42.15. That was not the normal practice under Mosaic law. And if we kind of look at the context, we can put some pieces together and and determine that Job more than likely lived for more more than 200 years. So this was common during the patriarchal age, but by the time of the judges had diminished where the life expectancy was less than 100 years. So all of that, we we kind of take that data from Job and we look and we believe that Job likely lived sometime between the flood and the time of Moses. Um, Most scholars would place Job in the patriarchal period about the same time that Abraham lived, just in a different place. So as this text unfolds, it reveals several things sequentially about Job. So it starts with his name and location. He was in this place called Uz, and then it moves on to his character. Job was blameless, upright, feared God, and turn away, turned away from evil, the text says, which reminds me a little bit of Noah. We just got study, done studying Noah. Uh, Job was unique amongst those around him. He was unique in his time, and prior to the, the written law, um, prior to having all of this uh, direct revelation, Job understood God and he understood some things about sin and how that worked. Um, Job really was a, an, incredible, an incredible person for picking up on that. And then it moves into his family. We see that he, uh, he was a, a father of seven sons and three daughters. <clears throat> Excuse me, A great blessing in those ages, maybe even more so than, uh, than we view it now. That would have been a, a great mark of, of wealth and success to have so many sons and, 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 and daughters. And then we see that his wealth and possessions are pointed out. Um, I don't know how else to, to, maybe, to maybe put it in terms that, that we would connect with, but Job was filthy rich. Um, he was a one percenter. 
Job was the, the Jeff Bezos of antiquity, the Elon Musk of antiquity, I might say. I mean, he had it all. He had the power and the prestige. If they uh, had newspapers during the day, he would have been in the newspapers. He would have been a household name. If, if there had been a stock market, then Job could have sent a tweet out and affected it. I mean, this is the type of person that he was. He was the prominent man in the East. I mean, he had all of the possessions. Everyone knew who he was. In short, Job was living the American dream 4,500 years ago. Job had everything a man could desire. He had wealth, he had prominence, and he had this large connected family. Now, it seems that, that so many, those, uh, so often those around us that we see um, blessed with physical things like Job struggle to keep their humility in check. They end up living a, a life of self-centered, um, pleasure, pleasure-seeking behavior. But, but Job didn't do this. Job was unique in that he had this high moral character. He dealt with integrity in both his private and his public life, and, and that's, that's confirmed even more as the book of Job goes on. And it's this diligence and steadfastness that I believe would have served as a powerful example for Job's children. You know, we read in the Bible a lot about the power of example. In 1 Timothy 4.12, um, Paul is writing to this young minister, Timothy, and he says, Let no one despise you for your youth, but set the believers an example in speech and conduct in love and faith and in purity. Jesus even spoke of the power of a leader's example in John 13. You'll recall in John 13, he was washing the disciples' feet. And as he kind of wrapped up this interaction with them, he, he points out the power of his example. We read in verses 12 through 15, When he had washed their feet and put on his outer garments and resumed his place, he said to them, Do you understand what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet... You also ought to wash one another's feet, for I have given you an example that you also should do as I have done to you. So leaders in the church, leaders in the family, leaders everywhere in every station of life throughout history share their most powerful and influential characteristics through their example. And who would have seen Job's example more intimately than his children? You know, so many of those who have uh, made it live in a way that fails to transfer the important things to their children. And often we find that those families are a mess. But what do we see in Job's family? Well, look down to verse 4. I mean, our information is admittedly sparse, but we see this one massive, powerful element that just sticks out to me like a sore thumb, and it's this. Job's family was a family that wanted to be together. They had regular feasts, in, indicating that they had a healthy, connected, long-term relationships that persisted past childhood. In verse 4, his sons used to go and hold a feast in the house of each one on his day, and they would send and invite their three sisters to eat and drink with them. How cool is that? I mean, isn't that just kind of the 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 target that a lot of us as parents are shooting for? 
I think Job's leadership in the family would have fostered this sort of connection. I think this is a, a similar goal that many of us share, and the father as a leader plays an important role in establishing and cultivating it. You see, we look at Job's family and we see that it wasn't about the stuff. We don't see his siblings um, infighting over inheritance, which you might normally expect with a, a man of that family of that wealth. We don't see any of the things that we would expect to see today among siblings of a, of a one percenter, of a, of, a, of a wealthy family. We just see a family who is connected and wants to be together. What about your family? You know, I... I laugh a little when I think about all of the different stories we tell about family gatherings. Um, sometimes they're wonderful, sometimes they're not so great, huh? Some of, our, some of our families are kind of a mess. You ever been at a family reunion when the conversation went the wrong direction and you were trying to stop it, but there you landed on politics or health care or finances? Uh, we, we are prone with our family to compete and, and share opinions and not often withhold opinions that we should withhold. The bottom line is all of us have examples of ways that our families are imperfect. And I would guess that Job's family had their share of stuff that they dealt with. We get frustrated when we come together. We disagree on things. We don't see eye to eye on all of our issues. But there's something to be said for still wanting to be together. Some of you are in the middle of the messiness of raising a family. Maybe you don't know how it's going to turn out just yet. Some of you have regrets about how you raised your children. Some of you raised them great and they chose poorly. Some of you are experiencing now the fruitfulness of a family that enjoys one another. We're all in a lot of different places. We come to the table with a lot of different experiences, but we all share some commonalities. First of all, there's not a perfect father, mother, or child among us. Every family's a mess in some regards. But despite the particulars of your family, be it awful or be it great, we all understand the concept of family, and I think we all understand the value of having a place to belong. In all of Job's earthly accomplishments, this was probably his most valuable one. Not the camels, not the wealth, not the prominence amongst the eastern country, Job had a family that wanted to be together. Now, I'm sure his family wasn't perfect. I can, can't imagine having 10 children and them not arguing. Even our church family is imperfect, and we have this perfect heavenly father trying to cultivate connections among us, but Despite our personal imperfections, despite our messiness, I look out at, at this church family and isn't being together good? You know, that's why I, I say the things that I say every time I stand up to speak. There's no place I'd rather be than this, and, and I mean it. And we see this modeled thousands of years ago in Job's family. There's just something about being able to be with those who are family that's important and valuable. I, I think about Sunday nights in particular and Wednesday nights. I notice it and I see it. Uh, Wednesday night, it was after 9 o'clock before we were able to turn the lights off in the building. You want to know why? Because we're a family that likes to be together. That's, that's really cool. And, and I think that, that flows from having a heavenly father who shows us what that type of connection is like. I believe the father sets the tone for this in his home. Job said it well, and our heavenly father sets it well. And so I ask our dads this morning, how are you doing in this regard? 
You know, so many elements of our uh, legacy will turn to dust someday, but a, a family legacy is something different. You know, I think about the parable of the prodigal son. It wasn't meant to teach us about fathering, but it does give us some examples of how a healthy father interacts with his children. And we see this in the story of the prodigal son. The the prodigal son approaches his father and asks for his inheritance early. He says, hey, I, I want my stuff. I would rather have my stuff than you. And he takes his stuff, and then what does he proceed to do? He takes it to a faraway land, and he squanders it on all sorts of immoral things and, and awful living, and to the point that this earthly legacy that his father had built and handed off to him early just vanished before his eyes. You know, very few fathers have to watch that. Generally, that would be reserved for after their passing. Even at that, you would wish that that wouldn't be what would happen with the family wealth. But, but the father, instead of dwelling on that, instead of worrying about the loss of all these material things, we see him take a different attitude. We see him take a different approach. Because when the prodigal son decides to turn around, where do we find the father? Sitting gazing into the distance, waiting, looking, hoping for his son. And when he sees him, what does he do? He stands up and he, and he runs to him. Luke 15, 17 through 20, when he came to himself, that's the son, he said, how many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger. I will arise and go to my father and I will say to him, father, I've sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And he arose and, and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. You see, the father understood that the things, the stuff, the wealth was not what was most important. What mattered was the relationship. And and for this particular son, he had to squander the wealth before he could see it too. So our fathers have a huge responsibility to prioritize and cultivate relationships within their family, to work to stay connected to the siblings, to connect the siblings to one another, to make the family a place of consistency and safety and belonging. A good father builds a home where children want to be. Our families are imperfect. But even if you didn't experience this growing up, even if you didn't have this with your earthly family, you can imagine... You can imagine wanting to be together even when you don't have to. You can celebrate and imagine celebrating and having fun together. And you can experience this very thing with a spiritual family like we have here. Now, we've established that Job accomplished something really awesome. It's provided, I believe, a challenge for us. He's given us a goal to strive after as both a spiritual family and within our physical families. But raising children that love each other isn't actually what I want to zero in on for Father's Day today. And here's the reason. The truth is this. I believe what we see in Job's family is a symptom of a deeper attitude. A symptom of, of, of something that... That, lay, that is more foundational, that's under the surface. You see, in Job 1.5, the text makes clear that Job cared most about his children's souls. And I think that's what formed the foundation for their relationship with one another. 
Job was rooted in something outside himself. He feared God. He was a man of principle and self-control. He was blameless and upright, and he turned away from evil. But as pertains to his family, he cared deeply about their spiritual well-being. In Job 1.5, And when the days of the feast had run their course, Job would send and consecrate them. And he would rise early in the morning and offer burnt offerings according to the number of them all. For Job said, It may be that my children have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. And thus Job did continually. Okay, so here we are. We're prior to the law. We're prior to this period of priestly intercessions that we see throughout so much of the Old Testament. But we see that Job, even before all of that, understood the magnitude of sin. And he understood, it, understood the, the need for, for something to intercede on behalf of those who had transgressions against God. He understood the need of blood to atone for sin. And Job stepped in and served in a priestly role for his children. As a spiritual leader of his family... He stepped in to cover the things that his kids could not yet see. And we see that his concern for their soul was something that never ceased. It was built into the fabric of who he was. He served in this priestly capacity on behalf of his children continually. Fathers, we often want to provide things for our kids. Toys, opportunities a chance for wealth and success and honor and power and comfort. But remember, we've already established the fleeting nature of these things, and this isn't the inheritance that we want to leave our children with. Instead, our goal as a father should be to leave them with a godly inheritance. Because if we do that, they're always going to have a family. They're always going to have a place where they belong because they'll have a heavenly father, and they'll have salvation. And that's what our kids really need. A family, a, a, a place to belong, and salvation. They need hope that extends past this broken world. Dads, you have the opportunity, even during this time and age, even under the New Testament, under this dispensation, to serve in a priestly role for your children. Now, don't hear me say something that I'm not saying. You can't offer a sacrifice for sins. That doesn't, that doesn't happen anymore. But that doesn't mean that you don't serve a role in connecting your children with God. I'll never forget a trip I took as a member of the youth group. It was a lot of years ago, and we went rafting down this river in Colorado. In fact, for years, those posters hung up on the wall. Um, and it had all of us in our boats, and we were going through the rapids. Some of you may have been on that trip and remember it. I remember getting in this raft of maybe 10 or 11 people in it, and we had a guide who was with us, and together we rowed, and the guide would, guide would tell us where to go. It looks like you should be over here, but really you need to be over here because the current's going to pull us in this direction, and be careful, over here there's a rock, and when I say row on the right side, you guys better go, and when I say stop over here, you better. And, and together we navigated down the river without falling out of the raft. In a sense, the guide served in a priestly capacity. That's kind of what I'm talking about. He didn't really do anything for us, but he understood things that we didn't. And he connected us to the river in a way that was important. Job served as a different kind of priest. He offered blood sacrifice for his children because there was sin that required it. He directly interceded. We no longer have priests today because of Jesus, but that doesn't mean the concept has disappeared. Fathers... 
Fathers are still used to guide and show children God. And they may not be offering blood sacrifices, but they provide a conduit to connect the children with the sacrifice that they need. Fathers, you are a powerful guide for your children. And just like that guide directed us down the river, your, your family is a, a powerful rowing unit in the rapids of life. Are you leading? Are you showing your children the currents? Are you pointing out the rocks? Do you know what lies ahead? Are you showing them the fishing holes? And when they fall out of the boat, are you helping them back in? Are you both empowering and interceding as necessary? Because we see both of these in Job. And I believe godly fathers continue to serve their families in this way today. So what does this look like? Well, our children don't need sacrifice. Our children need Jesus. Are you having the conversations needed to lead them to him? You teach them how to play catch, but have they heard the gospel story from you? You've told them about sin, but have you told them about grace? Have you showed them grace and have you showed them love? Have you told them about Jesus and the miracle of his resurrection and how the hope of eternal life changes everything for you, both as a person and how you live and as a parent and how you do that? We tell them all of the funny family stories, but have they ever heard your conversion story? Do they know about your decision to follow Christ and where you learned it from and how you were baptized? Do they know about your brokenness and where your new confidence is placed? We protect and advocate for our kids at school and on the field and in the world, but are we offering prayers and interceding on behalf of our children in that capacity? We tell them what is right, but are we modeling the behavior they need to adopt? Are we helping them see the things that we can see because of the life experience and maturity, the things that they don't understand yet? Are we guiding them down the river of life the way that we're supposed to? You see, we are most definitively going to leave an inheritance for our children. The question is this, will it be a godly inheritance? Job understood what was most important to pass along to his children. Do we understand it as well? Fathers are powerful influences and powerful examples in the life of their children. They directly display so much to their kids. They set the tone within the house which impacts their ability to teach and they stand in a unique place, especially during the younger years where they can serve as a bridge between youthfulness and God. Not in a personal capacity like the high priest, but more like a river guide. I think this morning we should thank God for fathers who have served their priestly role well. I was raised by a father who stood in this gap and connected me to God in a way that's proven quite a blessing. I was raised by a father who cultivated a family where we wanted to be together and there was a place of belonging. And today I get to reap the fruits of that. And I'm thankful for it. Perhaps some of you are done parenting and you look back and you feel a little bit like you failed. The truth is you shouldn't give up on your children. 
Oftentimes, we're, we're still growing, even as adults, and, and things change, and maybe, maybe you weren't where you were when you were parenting, and, and you wish you were, but you can look back and, and wish things all day long. All we have is the here and now, and to you, I would encourage you, even though later in life your priestly opportunities diminish, it doesn't mean that you don't have opportunities to influence and connect your children to God. You can continue to offer prayers. You should. If you look back and see spaces where your behavior led to their rebellion, ask for forgiveness, point it out, use the conversations and opportunities that you have to make the best of every moment left, because God can still work in powerful ways and often does. We should not lose hope. Perhaps you're here this morning despite a terrible father. Well, I want you to know this morning that you're in the company of a lot of other cycle breakers. People who, by the grace of God, have been led to faith despite an absent father or an unspiritual father or a harsh father. The New Testament is also full of cycle breakers, people who have decided to change and to make a difference. And we applaud you and we're pumped to see the fruit that your children are going to harvest because of the decisions you're making today. You know, it's easy to look back on the past with bitterness and to see all the things that we didn't have, but the New Testament model is not to look backward, it's to look forward. It's not to look back with regret, but it's to look forward with hope. Philippians 3, 13 through 14 says, Brothers, I do not consider that I've made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. I press on towards the goal. And that's the direction that we're heading. And you today have an opportunity to change the course of your family. Perhaps you aren't a father at all. Maybe you're single, maybe you're a mother, maybe your children have passed. As members of God's family, we understand the important and unique role that everyone plays. So here's my question to you. How will you support our fathers? What roles can you take on to give our fathers more time with their families? How can you mentor? How will you use your undivided interest to bolster and support the divided interest for those of us with families who are in the thick of it? To be honest, while fathers have a unique and powerful opportunity to influence, we are all called to bring glory to God through our lives. And this means, in a sense, we all serve in this sort of priestly role. Giving glory to God means that we help people see things that they might not see otherwise. In other words, we're helping to connect the world with the realities of who God is and, and what He has done. We all serve that role of a connector. So maybe you aren't a father, but you need a father, and you found a father, and now you have a responsibility to show the world what he is like. Praise God for fathers. Praise God that we can be called his sons and daughters. As we end, I'd like to offer an invitation. If you've studied and would like to put on Christ in baptism, if you need prayers to help in a time of need or a time of struggle, if you need a family, a place to belong, we're here, ready to respond. Whatever your need might be, come forward as we stand and sing.